So you go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, welcome to St. Peter's. My name is Preston. If I don't know you, uh, a warm welcome to you. Great to meet you after the service. If I do know you, it's great to see you as well uh, this Thanksgiving weekend. And we're happy to be gathered here in the Lord's house at Robson Square once again. Well, four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, passed on to us the story of Jesus. And because of these four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know almost everything we do about Jesus. Now, in their accounts about Jesus, the Gospels as we call them, Jesus' disciples only ask him to teach them one thing. They ask a lot of other questions, yes, and most of them Jesus doesn't answer. But to Jesus, the greatest teacher, leader, preacher, healer, and of course, as they soon discovered, the Son of God walking among them, they only ask Jesus to teach them one thing. Of course, uh, Jesus, everything he did wasn't written down, so maybe they asked him other things. I don't know, but only one of them actually got committed to ink. Do you know what it was? Anyone? Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, writes Luke. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. Why why is this the one thing of all the things that Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them? You know, there's lots of interesting things Jesus did. Why don't they ask Jesus to teach him some of those things like walking on the water or multiplying food or casting out demons or raising the dead? I mean, come on, if I were one of the disciples, I think I'd want to know how to do one of those, maybe first before praying. Well, Daryl Johnson, uh, a pastor who's reflected a lot on the Lord's Prayer, he wonders out loud about this question. He says, maybe it is because the disciples could see that Jesus is leading, his counseling, healing, casting out, and preaching ministry emerged out of his relationship with his Father. And they could see that the key to that relationship was prayer. Jesus, after all, was always slipping away to pray. The disciples saw Jesus' habit of prayer. Luke records Jesus slipping away to pray on six different occasions in his gospel. Six different times, Jesus leaves the crowd where all the people are gathered, the people he came to love and to serve and to be with. He leaves them in order to slip away to be alone with his heavenly Father. And when Jesus healed throngs of sick people and cast out demons, what did he do next? He woke up early the next morning while it was still dark and went away to a desolate place to pray. Jesus fed 5,000 people with loaves and a few few fish. What did he do? What did he do next? Did he like mic drop the bread basket and hang around to bask in the glory? Ask for a donation maybe? This would would have been a good time. No, he went up by himself on a mountainside, to pray. It seems crazy to someone who came to influence and to serve people. What? And of course, in Gethsemane, before he was killed, he withdrew away by himself to be with his father, to pray. In these opportune moments of influence, when he would have had the crowds like putty in his hands, healing them, feeding the hungry, casting out demons, Or if he ever wanted to play and manipulate emotions, these were the opportunities that were best. Time for an altar call, right? Time to take up a collection. Jesus withdrew 
by himself to pray. So they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. This is a strange habit you have. Teach us to know the one that you call the Father like you do. Teach us to relate to this Father like you do. So Jesus actually answers this question very directly. He doesn't do this often, but he just answers, and he, and he does. He teaches them to pray, and he gives them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. He gives them a model prayer, a guide for how to relate to the Father. And it's maybe the well, most well-known Christian prayer in the whole world. Luke and Matthew both record this prayer in slightly different versions. Luke's is a bit shorter. Now this, this difference, as many variations we have between the gospel accounts, simply testify to Jesus' itinerant preaching and teaching. That means he traveled around Galilee and the countryside and taught many different times to many different groups of people. To the question, well, which one did Jesus actually teach? Which one did he actually say? We can surely say both. He taught this prayer many times, I'm sure. And it's not the exact wording that's the most important thing. It's not a magical formula, an incantation or something to get God to do what you want. Uh, it's not about the exact arrangement of words. It's a model for how to relate to the Father. And it's brilliant. One scholar writes that this prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between gives six brief petitions about everything important in life. And I have one sermon, the next 25 minutes, to talk about it, to help us enter in together. Now, we could easily study this for six weeks or more and only begin to scratch the surface of what Jesus is on about. So today, I'm not going to be able to go through each of these petitions. Instead, we'll try to zoom out and look at the prayer as a whole and just ask the question, why did Jesus teach us to pray in this way? Why this way? He had many different ways, I'm sure. He could have taught, but he chose this, so why? Remember, prayer was the rock of his ministry. In his life, prayer rooted him in this relationship with the Father. It empowered his work. It kept his vision sharp on his mission. So I want to know, why did Jesus teach us to pray in this way? And what happens to us when we do pray in this way, when we do pray with the Lord's Prayer as our guide? Now, as I wrestled with that this week, uh, this is the, the main idea that I believe God shared with me for you and for me today about why Jesus taught us like this. And here it is. Here's the main idea for today. Praying the Lord's Prayer, praying this, this model prayer, surrenders my story to God's story. Praying the Lord's Prayer surrenders my story and your story to God's story. So uh, today as we, we're going to read the scripture passage again, the Lord's Prayer. I want to read it together again as, and, and read it as, it as it is on the screen. So let's, let's read the scripture together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A side note, if you're wondering where the last part is that we always say together, that closing doxology, it's not in the Gospels, actually. The early church started using it very early on to pray it, and it's actually taken from a prayer of David in First Chronicles. Um, and it's, it's just been included in the church's worship and liturgy for a very, very long time, since the earliest centuries, so we keep it. 
But back to the question, why does Jesus teach us to pray this way? So today we'll answer this question by talking a little bit about story and then looking at the prayer itself and tackling the two main parts briefly to see how they work together, the first part and the second part, to replace us, to put us in God's story as we, as we walk through our days. In 1968, the poet Muriel Rukeser wrote, the universe is made up of stories, not of atoms. And what did she mean by that? She meant that we as humans live in stories. We engage in different stories and we're surrounded by stories all the time. They shape us, our decisions, our relationships, and even our identities. And in more recent decades, the power of story has become widely known and appreciated in our world. We feel it. It's no longer a conversation just being had by philosophers and poets. Marketers and advertisers have harnessed its power, certainly. But for-profit organizations, nonprofit companies, uh, sports teams and churches and clubs and schools and just about everyone publicizes their story. If you go to a website, you look at the top bar of almost any website, whether it's a food blog or an insurance company, you'll find a tab, Our Story. Because if you like the story that they tell, they have you. If you want to be a part of their story, then you're in. I want to be a part of Patagonia's story. It's a big multinational outdoor company, which I know you all know about, and they're so good at this. Their founder, a guy named Yvonne Chouinard, tells his story all the time through this book and other books, documentaries, speaking. He tells it all over the place, and it's a story of a humble outdoor equipment company that has succeeded wildly all over the globe, yet it's committed to being first about conservation. Their mission statement is this, we're in business to save our home planet. That's what they're all about. Look at the name of Chouinard's book, telling his story. What's he drawing on? Another old story, isn't it? Let my people go. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Surfing. It's a cheeky play on an ancient story, isn't it? The one about Moses standing up to Pharaoh to bring justice to enslaved Israelites. Let my people go surfing. In this story, you're invited to join another story of justice. That's what it's drawing on. I want to be a part of a story of justice, not for enslaved Israelites, but for the planet. They have me. I want to be a part of this story, and I'm willing to pay more money for their jackets because of it. And I bet some of you will, too. Because people these days, you and I, more than anything else, want to live a good story. Now, why does all this matter? It matters because when we begin to follow Jesus, when we enter into his kingdom life, it's a decision to live in a different story, the story of the kingdom of God, a story that's being told, has been being told since the very beginning of time. It's a story about a good God who loves his creation and created the creation. It's a story about humanity, created in God's image, yet tarnished by sin, by wayward desire, by distorted will. It's a story of this creator God coming from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus to bring life, abundant life, to his creation, to bring justice and healing and salvation to a world gone astray. It's the story of this God inviting me inviting you into this redemptive work, yet respecting each person enough to let, let them walk away if they so choose and live a different story. Now, if you're a Christian, you've heard all this before, I bet. 
But if you're like me, you often forget it. You get submerged and lost in the barrage of all the other stories that you live around that are competing for your attention. And for followers of Jesus, this is a daily battle, isn't it? A daily tension, which story is first? Which will guide and orient the others? Is it the one about my career, my hobbies, my social media feed to give me direction or purpose? The story where my bank account and finances ground my hope? A story shaped by my political views and opinions? What story dictates how you live today? Is it living in and proclaiming the kingdom of God? Or is it something else? Here's a more concrete image a friend gave me this week at community group uh, that I think helps. Imagine your life is represented by a big dresser with lots of drawers. There's lots of drawers. Each drawer is part of your life. Family, work, friendships, interests, school, your dog, the food you eat, the clothes you wear. You have all these drawers in your life, but what's holding them all together? What is, the, what is the dresser housing them that's giving them shape? Is it the kingdom of God that defines how each and every one of these look and how they're used and how they fit together? Or is it something else? Again, one, one about personal comfort and money, about influence and being the one at work that everyone wants to please. It could be a dresser about pleasure and doing what feels good. It could be about making it through life without causing any problems or making any mistakes. What are you going after is the question. I mean, really, not what you just tell yourself, but what really guides you day in and day out. What's the dresser? What, what's the story that we're living in? It matters a lot. It's why Alistair McIntyre the famous Oxford philosopher and theologian famously wrote, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? They shape everything. Well, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we know that for followers of Jesus, it's very clear that there's only one option. There's only one story that can guide our other stories. And when we pray the model prayer Jesus gives us, and allow it to shape our life, we see the kingdom story taking over. See, when the kingdom of God takes over in our lives, the other stories we're a part of, they're not negated. They're not erased. They don't just disappear. But the kingdom gives us something to weigh them against. If they're worthwhile stories, they're given real purpose, eternal purpose. If they're worthless stories, we soon see them as such. This is why Jesus taught us to pray the way he did. The prayer is the solid reference point that we can examine our hearts and our lives against. It reveals us. How? Let's take a closer look. The prayer is split into two halves. The first half puts us in this, in this story, in God's kingdom story, and the second half helps us stay grounded in it day in and day out. So let's look at the first half briefly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer of surrender before anything else. It's a prayer of laying ourselves down in surrender. Jesus teaches us to pray together, not alone, but together, our Father. Before he is just mine, he is our Father. 
And Jesus teaches us to pray that God is Father. Let's notice that too, a loving and good Father who knows what's best for his kids. But then, then things get really interesting. The next three petitions are each modified by this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. So it could go like this. May your name be made holy on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, right now, God's name is made holy. His kingdom is being enacted and his will is being carried out in heaven. On earth right now, sometimes his name is being, being made holy. Sometimes it's lifted high and worshipped. But I spend a lot of time hoping people think my name is worth knowing and acknowledging and lifted up. On earth right now, sometimes I do see glimpses and images and pictures and, 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 and times and places of God's kingdom. I see it. And sometimes I see his will being done, and it's beautiful. But I spend a lot of time and energy and money finding ways that my will is carried out, that the story I want to live is written, that my kingdom is established just how I like it. This is a prayer of surrender. It's not easy. In fact, it's a bold prayer, and when I pray it with an honest heart, it takes time to get through it, these couple lines. When I do, I can almost picture myself clinching on to the way of life where I'm at the center, and God gently, ever so gently, opening my hands and saying, Preston, I'm your Father in heaven. Trust me. Guess what? Sometimes your name will need to be scorned and mocked so that mine can be made holy. And this is heaven coming down. Your kingdom, which means what you actually have say over in the world, it needs to be submitted to my kingdom. You know, I, may, I may do something like ask you to keep living in a big, expensive, busy city to raise two kids when you'd rather not in a lot of ways. That's heaven coming down. Your will, what you think right and wrong is, Preston, what your 21st century society and urban culture has told you to prioritize and value, yeah, you're going to need to surrender that too. Surrender that to my will. That's heaven coming down. It's a prayer of submission that puts us in God's kingdom story and out of ourselves. Now, the second half of the prayer grounds us in that as we go. Really simply, give us today our daily bread. The things I need, not want, but need today. Physical sustenance and Jesus' kingdom. Physical needs are taken seriously and cared for. We see that all throughout the Gospels. Jesus heals the body and the soul. The prayer, forgive my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. Forgive my heart before you, O God. Heal my relationships with others. In Jesus' kingdom, healing our relationships with God and with others daily, coming back to him to be reconciled and reconciling with one another is essential. It's a prayer to be defined through and through by grace. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, protect me from the trials that I so often fall into. Rescue me from the very real spiritual forces of evil that work in the world and around us. In Jesus' kingdom, we walk in reliance on God to carry us through 
to shield us from evil. See, the second half of the prayer directs our hearts to pray for what matters to God, not to us. Physical needs, forgiveness, relational wholeness, walking in holiness and rightness and purity with God. So our question, why did Jesus teach us to pray this way? It's because this prayer surrenders my story to God's story by redefining what I'm going after in life, that end point, what am I chasing, and then shaping my desires in my heart to follow that instead of the other things that I'm often want to go after. And when we live this story, when we pray this prayer and lean into it, things happen. Things actually happen. His name is hallowed. The kingdom comes. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is so wise, isn't he? Look at the prayer again. His model prayer, this prayer he taught, sits right at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying for weeks. And we all know, or we, I hope if you've been around, you know that this, this sermon is all about the kingdom of God. And at the center of the prayer, that's at the center of the sermon, we find this line, on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. It's the heart of the prayer, and it's the story we're invited to surrender to. And praying this prayer, praying this prayer actually moves the story forward. Really, it actually moves the story forward. It's one of the great mysteries of faith, isn't it? That God is all-powerful. And he chooses to allow the prayers of his people to participate in his kingdom work. Praying the prayer surrenders our story to God. And praying the prayer brings heaven down to earth. Because when you and I, when we actually surrender these other stories that we have to God's kingdom... God begins to take them and redeem them, to resurrect beauty out of them, to make something new. Stories of sin and shame become stories of hope and renewal. Stories of self-interest and wealth and living the good, beautiful life become stories of sacrifice and radical generosity. Stories of passivity and insecurity that you and I may live in and tell yourself, could I possibly have anything to offer the world? They become stories of courage and confidence and transformation. When we pray this prayer, when we enter into the kingdom story with our whole hearts and our whole lives, heaven does come down. And it's been so for a very long time. For over 2,000 years, the earliest Christians were praying this prayer right after Jesus taught it to them up until today. The earliest Christian document of instruction, it's called the Didache from the 2nd century, it taught Christians to pray this prayer three times a day. Since the very moment that they said, Lord, teach us to pray, it's been going on in the hearts of Jesus' followers, from Roman colosseums and catacombs to desert monasteries to soaring medieval cathedrals and churches from east to west and everything in between. Right up to today, this prayer has unified the church and pushes her towards the kingdom way, pushes the church to surrender to Jesus. See, the reality is not all prayers are worth praying. They're not all equal. A lot of prayers you and I pray actually are too small and too narrow. 
and sometimes too egotistic. A lot of the prayers we pray are, are literal Hail Mary, as in if nothing else has worked, well, maybe this will. That's why we need to lean into this prayer and let it shape us. Many people will say to the question, what is prayer? Well, it's simply conversation with God. And this is true in a sense. But let me ask you this. What kind of conversation are you having with God? In her book, Fierce Conversations, Susan Scott says that the conversation you're having with a person is the relationship. The conversation is the relationship. What she means is honest, real, meaningful conversations are indicators and markers of a healthy, growing relationship. Dishonest ones or manipulative ones or accusing ones or complaining or surface ones, they reveal decay and distance. What sort of conversation are you having with God? What does your relationship look like with Him? Your conversation will be a sign. You see, we need better prayers, which means we don't need anything new, that's for sure. We need something old and true and trustworthy, namely the simple words that Jesus has already given us. The prayer that surrenders my story to God's and puts me at His disposal and His story that brings about my individual stories and ties them together into his kingdom. The prayer that participates in God's work, in his very life, and joins in the story of heaven coming to earth, the story of Jesus. Start praying it. Really start praying it. And see what happens. See if heaven doesn't start coming down. Let's start right now. You pray with me. Our Father, our good, loving Father, not just mine, but our Father, our Father who is in heaven, we love you, we worship you for being to us a Father, a Father of love, a Father who knows us. Hallowed be your name, holy is your name. We worship you and lift your name high, Father. We acknowledge that your name is above every name, holy is your name. May your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. We beg and we plead, may your kingdom come. May it supersede each of our own kingdoms, the areas we have influenced. May your kingdom come, rule and guide and direct us. May your will be done. May your will be carried forth. And may our hearts and lives be shaped to your will, not ours, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need, Lord Jesus. For those who are sick, will you bring life and healing? For those who can't sleep, will you bring rest? For those who are hungry, will you give food? Give us today our daily bread. Care for our bodies, frail as they are. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, will you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.